John chapter 5. So in my study, I wanted to tackle the entire chapter, chapter of, uh, of John chapter 5. Um, but as it turns out, you don't want to be in church for two hours. So, um, so we, <laughs> I'm going to break it into two groups. But as we come now to, uh, to John chapter 5, I'm reminded of Romans 8.28. Very popular verse. We know it as, as Christians. Uh, it says this, that it, we know it, that in all things, God works together for good to those that love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. And that phrase works together. It's the Greek word synergeo. And, uh, and the idea of this word, we get the word synergy um, from this, this word synergeo, and it means a combined action or operation. And the idea is that God combines different events. He's working on all sides, and he's simultaneously in one situation doing a million things. We maybe see the one thing that he's doing, but we don't comprehend how he is synergistically working in, in all areas, and he may be using this one isolated event that we think on a linear fashion is just this one thing, but really for God, uh, it's a million things, right? And he's using this for that, and he's using that for this, and so on. And we're going to see that dynamic at work in our text this morning. Uh, Jesus is going to perform the third miracle that John records. Certainly, he performed many more miracles than this. John highlights a, a few select miracles. This is the third one we're going to look at uh, today. But in synergistic fashion, this miracle is going to serve two purposes. Number one, it's going to serve to provide care for an afflicted man, and secondly, it's going to serve to provoke conflict with arrogant religious leaders. And so today, um, we're going to dig deep into the providing care for the afflicted man side of things, and we're going to see how that applies to us. We'll touch lightly on the provoking conflict, and then we're going to dig into that more next week. So with that as an introduction, John chapter 5, verse 1, after this. Now, you might think, okay, chronologically, this happened immediately after the events of John chapter 4. That's not the case. It did happen after it, but John takes selected stories, so we need to understand that uh, a, a period of time has transpired from uh, Jesus' ministering to the Samaritans and so on. And so after this, there was a feast of the Jews, now, the Jews had several feasts. There were, there were several feasts where they were required to actually come to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship. Feast of Passover was one of those, and so on. This, the text doesn't tell us which feast that it was. Um, we can speculate, but it's not important to the story that we're going to read to read today. We just need to know that it was one of those public gathering feasts where everybody was called, uh, all the believers were called to come to Jerusalem. So there was a lot of people there uh, in Jerusalem. Jesus went up to Jerusalem for this, this feast. And now verse two, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, which means house of blessings. And um, there's this pool called in Hebrew Bethsaida having five porches. And archaeologists have uncovered this. The five porches are still there. If you go to Jerusalem today, as we did, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago, it wasn't even a year ago, but the last time we were there, we went to the pool of Bethsaida. It's there, and you can see it. And in these days, verse 3 tells us, lay a great multitude of sick people, these people uh, blind, lame, paralyzed, they would lay on these porches around the pool, and uh, verse 3 concludes, waiting for the moving of the water, verse 4, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water 
was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, let me stop right there. If you today are reading along with me here and you're studying, your Bible is either the ESV version or if you have the New Living uh, Translation or maybe you've got the NIV um, uh, the version, these are based on earlier Greek manuscripts and you will notice that the end of verse three and all of, chapter, all of verse four is not in your translation. Uh, here's why. These verses contain over a half a dozen Greek words that are foreign to John's writings. Um, and they include uh, three, three words that are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Um, the thought is that the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 were actually uh, scribes' notes, that they were added there by the scribes, not put in there by John, and they were to explain why the people were gathered on the porches around the pool and what the dynamic was, what was, was so significant um, about this uh, place. Um, and so the earliest Greek manuscripts don't have this section here. Now, that shouldn't freak you out because... It does nothing um, to distract from the text. It doesn't take anything away from what John says. And so we can, we can treat this as, you know, this is probably commentary that is added, uh, not necessarily the inspired uh, word of God. Um, but this is the dynamic that was going on. There was this pool, and whether there, there was literally an angel who came and stirred the water and that, you know, the first one in uh, got healed, or whether this was um, a, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a tradition that, that, you know, everybody believed this and came to the pool to be healed, uh, we're not sure. Either way, no bearing on the text. Verse 5, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity... 38 years, 38 years, this guy uh, dealing with this infirmity. We don't know how many years he's been coming to this pool, but he is a desperate man. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Seems like an obvious question, right? Do you want to be made well? It's like, well, duh, I've been coming here for, for all of these years. I mean, why else do you think I'm here? But see, here's the deal. Not everyone wants to get better. Not everybody wants to get better. People say they want to get better, but not everybody does. For some people, their sickness becomes part of their identity and it becomes part of their routine. Uh, they grow accustomed to the attention that their sickness brings to them. Or they grow accustomed to the community that they develop, which is really a part of their, of their infirmity. Or they grow accustomed, as was the case in these days, to the outpouring of benevolence that they receive for their afflicted condition. Some people make their living from the outpouring of benevolence. And we, we actually see that in America today, where you have entire segments of society, generation upon generation... Who, who make their living out of the outpouring of benevolence and it becomes a lifestyle. And so this, this is a dynamic that not everybody wants to be made well. Um, as much as people say they want to get better, the familiar becomes more comfortable than the change. You see this in dysfunctional people all the time. They live their lives in chaos and conflict and that's what's familiar to them. 
and they'll actually sabotage things if things get too good. And they don't consciously do this. This is subconsciously. But what happens is because they're used to chaos and conflict, in the absence of chaos and conflict, they, 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 they become unsettled. And so they will sabotage things because it feels more normal. Maybe you remember the movie Terms of Endearment with Shirley MacLaine. The, the movie starts off with this mother who's trying to console her baby. The baby is losing it, and mom is losing it, and, uh, and you know, all she wants is for this kid to go to sleep and for peace and quiet. But the moment her kid goes to sleep, she's more uncomfortable with the peace and quiet. So what does she go do? She goes in and wakes the baby up, and now the baby starts crying, and she walks out and says, that's better, right? Because she's, she, this is the dynamic of chaos and conflict. So people say they want to get better, but not everybody really wants to get better. As, all, as well, some people, they may want to get better, but they don't want to change. They don't want to change. You know, uh, people will, will come to counseling and they'll say, you know, we want this to be fixed. Or people will go to the doctor's office and they'll say, I want to get better. And the counselor or the doctor will say, all right, well, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. And, they, and they're not interested in doing this, that, or the other. You know, you go back to the doctor. It's like, hey, I told you, you know, to lose some weight and to start doing some exercise. Did you do any of that? No, I didn't. And I'm, you're supposed to get better how, you know? And so sometimes people want to get better, but they don't want to make the change. You know, you see a person who, who's, you know, struggling with alcoholism. And they have a lot of, of um, problems that their lifestyle has caused. They've lost job after job. They've lost their family, perhaps. They're losing their health. And they lament over their situation, but they keep climbing back into the bottle. So some people may want to get better, but they don't want to make the change. Now, we don't know the specific nature of this man's infirmity, but there's clues in the text that suggest that there is a distinct possibility, we, we can't say this definitively, but there's a distinct possibility that he may be in this condition because of some poor life choices that are in play. Jesus is going to say to him in verse 14, if you want to glance ahead at verse 14, he's going to heal this man, and he's going to say to him, see you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The way that this is structured in the Greek, when Jesus says, sin no more, it suggests that perhaps his affliction is connected to sinful choices and sinful behaviors. Now, listen, understand this. Because of sin, in this world, we have strife, we have suffering, we have sickness that ultimately leads to death. Death, death physically, death emotionally, death spiritually, and, and Romans 5 talks about this. It tells us that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. And the effects of sin are like weeds. Uh, and that means that sin not only begets death, but the toxic of effect of sin, it multiplies. It multiplies. I recently uh, paid a guy to come to my house, and he brought his tractor, and he ripped out a ton. And my, and my, my backyard was like, you know, you needed a machete to walk through my backyard, right? And so he ripped everything out, brought it all down to dirt. 
And I'm doing an ongoing work of restoration and work, uh, and so I've got plans for having gotten everything down, um, but, you know, there's some building and stuff that needs to take place before I can do all the planting. Well, the weeds didn't get that memo, right? And so what's happening now is as I'm watering different trees and stuff, I'm noticing the weeds are starting to grow. This is what happens like sin, toxic effects of sin. You You don't have to cultivate weeds. They just grow and multiply. And so the infection of sin, it spreads more death and destruction. And what that means for you and me is that in general, that there is suffering and sickness and death in the world, and it just happens. You don't have to cultivate it, right? It's just this general consequence of sin because we live in a fallen world. Uh, in other words, not every sin is a, or not every illness is a direct result of sin right? It's an indirect result of sin. Um, In John chapter 9, we're going to get there in in, uh, several weeks, and we'll see that there is a man who was born blind, and Jesus' disciples come to him, and they go, hey, Jesus, uh, who sinned? Did he sin, or did his parents sin? And and Jesus is going to answer that, and he's going to go in depth, and we'll break into it when we get there, but in part, what Jesus tells them is he didn't sin, and his parents didn't sin. That his affliction is just the general result of living in a fallen world. But other times, sickness and suffering and death has our help, right? And it is a direct consequence, sometimes our afflictions, of our sinful actions. Um, this, this happens sometimes with the acts, the sinful acts of others against us. Like, for instance... When David uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and he wanted to cover it up um, because as it turns out, she's pregnant and David wants to hide it. So what's he do? He ultimately ends up killing her husband, Uriah, right, to, to cover up his sin. So, so there's, there's the, the effects of sin that have a, a tragic, uh, uh, murderous effect on another man as a direct result of the sinful actions of another person. As well, sometimes we see acts of demonic forces, the sinful acts of demonic forces against us that lead to affliction in our lives. You you read the book of Job, and here's a guy who, who loses his family, loses his wealth, loses everything he owns. Why? Because the enemy is attacking him. So the sinful attack of the enemy results in in uh, a direct, uh, this direct consequence of, uh, of sin and suffering and sickness and illness and so on. And then there is the case as, we're, was, as perhaps is happening here, we can't say definitively, where the direct results of sin uh, are, are afflicting us because of sinful choices, right? Paul talked about this, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, he said to them regarding partaking of communion, for if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. And he goes on to say, that is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have even died. What Paul is emphasizing there is that when we partake of communion, what we are supposed to do in the, in the act of remembering Jesus' work on the cross, what we are simultaneously doing is we are reorienting our lives to the Lord. 
Uh, years ago, I, I, I used to have a, a small 18-foot boat. I would take it over to Catalina all the time, and uh, I had a little compass. I'd throw it there in the cup holder, and, and what do you do on the way across? You're constantly checking your compass heading because the natural tendency is to go off course. You know, when you're out in the middle of the ocean, you can't see land in any direction. Uh, it's pretty hard to stay on a straight line. So what do you do? You check the compass, and you check it often, and you reorient uh, the attitude, the, the direction, the alignment of, of the boat to line up with the, your compass heading. And this is what we are to do when we partake of communion. We're remembering Jesus' work on the cross. We're, re- we're remembering the, the bread representing his body broken for us, the cup representing his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we partake of that, we're remembering that, that, you know, that it, is, it is Jesus who saves us. It is, it is the alignment of our obedience to walking with him that keeps our life on track. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthians there is that when we get away from that practice, that we fall off course. And the result is that we facilitate suffering and sickness and death. That's precisely exactly what he tells these Corinthians. That many of you are sick because of sinful choices. Many of you have died prematurely because of your sinful choices. And so the effects of sin, either in general or in specific, they bring physical, emotional, and spiritual death. But regardless of the source, we need to ask ourselves this morning, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? I would encourage you as we gather together corporately every week that we need to come in church with that as the, the prayer and the seeking that, that, we are, that we are coming together for. And we need to guard our hearts against getting into routine. I don't know about you, I like routine. I like routine a lot because I, I, am a, I am a creature of habit and I like to have my set routine. And when my routine get it, gets interrupted, um, that it, you know, it throws me off track. But the problem with routine is sometimes you can operate mindlessly. And so we, that can even happen when we come to church where it's like, I just come to church, right? And this is what I do. And now it's time to worship and now it's time for the study of the word. But what we are exhorted to do is that God wants to do a work in us, right? Uh, Paul told the Philippians, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Loose translation, you and I are a piece of work. <laughs> right? And God wants to continue that work. So when we come together, what we need to understand is that there are general and specific results of sin. And we need to be constantly understanding and answering this question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? And if you want to be made well, then as we gather together, what we need to do is keep that short account with God and say, this is a compass heading check. How am I doing, Lord? And is there areas in my life where I am unwell? And, you know, typically, those areas where you're unwell, sometimes you know, you know good and well what ails you, right? You know good and well what it is that you're doing that you need to stop doing or or whatever the case may be. But sometimes you're blind to it, absolutely blind to it. I remember I went through a period of time, and and I won't get into all the details, but but I I was dealing with pride, and everybody in my life could see it but me. And, And it took a long course and road 
for the Lord to break through my thick skull that, dude, you got a pride issue, man. And, and so God wanted to do that work. Now, so Jesus asks this guy this question, do you want to be made well? Notice his response in verse 7. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now, Jesus asked this guy a yes or no question. Do you want to be made well? And instead of getting a yes or no response, this guy gives a response of all the excuses of why he can't be made well. Hey, it's because nobody helps me. It's because people are cutting in on me. I'm just the victim here, right? People don't care. They don't help. The text, verse 6, by the way, indicates that he'd been in that condition a long time. That phrase, long time, in the Greek, it means many. It means much. It means large. It needs abundant. Why do I point that out? Because some of y'all need to hear that today. Long, long time. And as you take a walk with this question, do you want to be made well? Some of y'all, you need to get well, but you got a laundry list of, of reasons of why you can't get well. People won't help me. People cheated on me. People wronged me. Guys, listen, you can't move forward if you're looking backwards. You can't move forward if you're looking backwards, right? And so many people, they want to live their life and drive their, the, life, the car of their life by looking through the rearview mirror. You got to look through the windshield. Do you want to be made well? People are going to wrong you. People are going to cut you off. It happens. People are going to let you down. And there's always going to be more reasons why you can't be made well than why you can be made well. But listen. You ain't going to make yourself well. You can't make yourself well. People and pools are not the answer to your problem. And this is a big issue here because Jesus says, do you want to be made well? And he gives all this laundry list of reasons why he can't be made well. And where is his focus? It's on the pool and it's on the people. People aren't helping me. The pool, I can't get to it, right? But man, that pool is where my hope is. Guys, point of application today. Sometimes we look and even gathering together, we think, oh, the church is the answer to my problems. Can I tell you, the church is not the answer to your problems. Jesus is the answer to your problems. People aren't the answer to your problems. Nobody's helping me. Jesus is the answer to your problems. And so Jesus says to him in verse eight, rise, take up your bed, and walk. 38 years. 38 years this man has been afflicted. 38 years he's dependent on other people. 38 years, do you think, gosh, rise, take up your bed and walk? What is this? It's an impossible task. It is absolutely, overwhelmingly impossible. It is entirely dependent on the grace of God and on placing your faith in God. And sometimes we see people in the scriptures who come to Jesus by faith, right? Think of the woman with the issue of blood uh, in Luke chapter 8. We're going through that. Here's this gal, 12 years, she's been in this afflicted condition. And the text tells us that she reasons in her mind, if I can just get to Jesus, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'm going to be healed. She, she initiates this, this pursuit 
of the Lord. She touches the hem of his garment and she's healed. And Jesus replies to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. But you know, sometimes, as is the case here in our text, we see a man who is so lost, a man who is so broken. There's no initiation on his part whatsoever. He's like the guy that we read about in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus is heading into the town of Nain. He goes into Nain and he's greeted by a funeral procession. And out comes this poor widow who's lost her husband and now she's lost her only son. She's all alone. She's weeping, she's lamenting, and here's this dude, and he is dead as a doornail, laying in the coffin, and Jesus comes up and says to the guy, everybody out of the pool, man. He's like, you know, rise, rise up, raises the guy from the dead. Now, what could this guy do to save himself? Absolutely nothing. He was dead. He was going to his grave. And the Lord initiates and heals him. And by the way, in both situations, whether you're pursuing the Lord saying, I, I need to be made well, or whether you are so, so dead and so gone that it's the Lord initiating, understand it is always the Lord initiating. He's either initiating and moving upon your heart, which I pray is going to happen today, that he moves upon your heart and causes you to be able to cry out and say, if I could just get to Jesus, I'll be made well. But sometimes, as is the case in our text today, you've got a guy who ain't looking to Jesus. He's looking to people, he's looking to pools, and by his grace and his mercy, the Lord comes to him, do you want to be made well? I had a friend, have a friend, his name's Phil, and uh, he has a radical testimony. He was a drug addict and just used to tell us stories about all of the multiple ways he should be dead, you know, 12 ways from Sunday all the things that he did. And he said one night he was tripping on acid with a friend of his, just completely out of his mind, and then God showed up and basically spoke to him and said, you want me to set you free? And he said, yes, Lord. And in that instant, his testimony is he went from being completely gone out of his mind to absolutely 100% stone-cold sober, had encountered Jesus, surrendered his life to Jesus. God radically transformed this guy. And now he loves the Lord, follows the Lord, serving the Lord. He was made completely well and sober. And maybe today, God in his grace is initiating with you. And he's meeting you and he's asking you the question, do you want to be made well. Maybe you're watching online right now. You finished up here. You don't know how you finished up here and you don't know why you stayed here and you're listening to me. And right now I'm telling you that maybe God is, is appearing to you. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be set free? And again, I want you to, I want to emphasize, I want you to take note that Jesus asked this man to do the impossible. It's just like he asked the man with the withered hand in Mark chapter 3. He's got this withered arm, withered hand, and what does Jesus say to him? Stretch out your arm. He'd never been able to stretch out his arm. It's the impossible that he asks him to do. Right at this moment, this man has a choice. Just as you have a choice right at this moment. He can revert back to the broken record of excuses about what he can't do and why he can't do it, or he can respond in faith. And so we read in verse 9, and immediately 
The man was made well. He took up his bed and he walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Now, I told you when we started that this miracle served two purposes. Number one, to provide care. And Jesus has done that. And the second purpose is to provoke conflict. And we get a glimpse of the conflict at the end of verse 9. It just says, and it's kind of like a throwaway line, almost seems like just sort of a casual observation, but everything hinges on this. It tells us that day was the Sabbath. Simply put, the Sabbath is a day of rest. In the beginning, God established the Sabbath as a gift for mankind. It's a day to honor the Lord and to bless his people, right? And so the, the, Jesus said that the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not for the people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, right? But what happened was the Jews had turned that gift into a burden. They added 39 rules and regulations all around the keeping of the Sabbath. And then what they did, as they so often did with so many things, is that the, all of the rules and regulations that they would add, they elevated above the Word of God. And so they, they said, look, you need to keep the Sabbath. Here's all the 39 things you can't do. And if you do those things willfully, the penalty is you're going to be stoned to death. So here, when Jesus heals this poor guy on the Sabbath, rather than rejoice, notice their outrage. Verse 10 says, The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, Praise God, 38 years, my goodness, you have been inflicted and you God has healed you. And oh, my brother, come here, let me give you a hug. How awesome is this? No, he didn't do any of that. He was cured, and these guys say, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed, right? Completely wrong focus. We're going to pick up this story next week, but I want you to understand that this event is what lights the fuse on these guys murdering Jesus. This is the event that lights the fuse. This is the event that sets in course the motion of Jesus ultimately going to the cross for us. Now, Jesus, next week as we get into this, he's going to emphasize his authority, he's going to emphasize his deity, he's going to talk about the coming judgment, and what he's going to do is he's going to use this event, this, this outpouring of grace and mercy for a man afflicted for 38 years, he's going to use this to initiate and address the unbelief of these religious leaders. You see, just as this man here at the pool had languished for 38 years because of his sin, there's a very interesting parallel to the nation of Israel. If you read in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, it tells us there that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 38 years. 38 years. And they wandered because of the sin of unbelief. And I want you to get this here. As Jesus is synergistically using this, he didn't have to heal this guy right at this moment, right on this day. He chose a very, very public place. Uh, up until this point, the other miracles are recorded in John's gospel. They're not public miracles. They were very private affairs. You know, the, the, the wedding at, at Cana, the, the servants got to see the miracle, you know, of the water into wine. And, and last week, the, Jesus healing uh, this man's son. Right, you know, his servants got to see it. The man got to see it. It wasn't, it wasn't a big public thing. 
But Jesus chose in this miracle, he goes to a very, very public place, packed with people, does a very, very public work, and he chose to do it on the Sabbath. This guy, in his affliction, 38 years, he didn't have a crisis, he had a chronic issue. So often we'll have people, they'll call the office, they're like, I need to talk to Pastor Ted right now. And then we start unpacking what's going on. It's like, this isn't a crisis. You're, 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 you're going through something that's been a chronic issue for years and years and years. And now all of a sudden, you know, Pastor Ted's supposed to drop everything and deal with this chronic issue, right? Well, why does Jesus say, well, I need to do this. This is so important. I'm going to do it on the Sabbath because he's using it. He's going, he wants to pour out his mercy on this guy. But he wants to force the issue with these religious leaders wants to deal with this issue of unbelief. He's forcing the issue. Point of application as we close. Sometimes the Lord forces the issue in your life and my life. Sometimes he forces the issue. Forces the issue in our marriage. Forces the issue with our kids. Forces the issue in some other way. He forces the issue. And often, just like we're going to see next week, when he forces the issue, when we've gotten the glimpse in verse 10, forces this issue, what's the response? It's outrage, it's anger, it's wrath. And often that'll happen in our life. When the Lord forces an issue in your life, your initial response may be one of anger, it may be one of wrath, it may be one of outrage. But in that moment, he's forcing the issue because he wants to give to us an opportunity that we might respond to the Lord in this way, in this situation. And so four questions as we close today. I'll put them on the screen for you. Number one, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Second question, is there a pool that you are looking to or people that you're looking to instead of looking to Jesus? Third question, what are your excuses of what you can't do and why you can't do it? Third question, what impossible thing have you not trusted God for?